uh, you are live everywhere on Simonario on Facebook and on Flipside.org slash live. Well, live is a relative term now to me. I'm not so, whoops, not exactly lighting it up here. I'm up to, just so you know, Dave, I'm up to 84 now. 84. Uh, it's 81 yesterday. Mm-hmm. Three more today. I figured out when they're in the ureters because the pain's really bad. And then when they drop down out of the ureters, then it subsides and then more follow behind. But yeah. I think I'm going to end up going over 100 at the rate I'm going here. You are live. Oh, I am live? Okay. Well, that's a little information that doesn't matter to anybody but me. Uh, okay, let's see. Put the glasses down here. Move the water into an appropriate place. Got the magic pen in my pocket. Holy magic pen. April the 18th, 2021, lecture discussion number 134 on the book of Joel, Daniel, Revelation, Ecclesiastes, Job, 1 Kings 13, 2 Kings 23. So that's we're still there. It doesn't seem like it, but we really are. And if you were with us on April 11th, which was last week, I hope. Man, the floor is making noises all of a sudden. Who who put this hardwood floor down? Lori made a mess. We have to. We got to get a civil attorney to start. You know, lawsuit. That's what this is right here. I can hear it. Okay, if you were with us on April 11th, lecture number 133, then I trust that you may uh, remember the four questions. I have four questions that I put on the board last week. They were submitted for consideration here. And for those uh, who are joining us for the first time, so I get a lot of people that they'll come at any given time to this lecture series. So they've missed 134 or 33 lectures. Uh, other than that, there's no disadvantage. But if for those of you joining us, uh, this is the first lecture you've ever heard or who follow Cliffside for the therapeutic properties as they apply to insomnia, because it's my job to put as many people to sleep as I possibly can in the shortest period of time. That is why uh, Terithathy is in a lazy boy with a blanket right now. So I do what I can. In any event, it's going to be necessary to revisit these four questions today because I didn't get it done. i got to add more pieces, and I'm not going to get it done again today. I know because I wrote this, and I know where I stopped. So it's going to be a somewhat different approach. Think observational frame of reference. I'm going to move over to the side and look at it from a different perspective, if you will. Some might suggest a scance. Uh, unconventional approach, maybe. Uh, others would say erratic or demented, and I, of course, have to concede the possibility. Catawampus, I hear that a lot. I, I like to think awe-inspiring. Yeah. That's what I like. We, you may disagree, and we can agree to disharmonize there. But all of that to, to justify the rewording of these four questions. That's the plan today. And that might confuse a large percentage of the Internet, the vast Internet audience. Uh, but that, as you know, is my methodology, is to confuse people and put them to sleep. And uh, I think I'm very, very adept at all of that. So that's the point, yay a point. Okay, question number one, if you were here or if you fell asleep or you weren't here or whatever, uh, came from Pastor Sherman, a very wise man in Oklahoma. And he asked essentially this, what is the aggregation of the beheading of Goliath and the subsequent burial? Oh, wait, I have to move over here because this thing's in the way of my flipping. How about that? Now we're set up. What, what is the aggregation of the beheading of Goliath and then the subsequent uh, burial of the head of Goliath in Jerusalem? And that's what his question is. He wanted to know. Extra credit question, for whom specifically was this uh, burial of Goliath, his head, and the cross. Uh, what is, who was it for? That becomes an important question. So, obviously, the burial of the head of Goliath and the placing of the cross of Christ, and that's my position, I'm defending it again today, is a prophecy. Because the cross is on top of, I, I got rid of my diagram, it was beautiful, somebody thought it was too, too good to leave up there, or the opposite. But the cross is on top of the head of Goliath, in my view, and I think it's overwhelming, the evidence. And obviously, it's a prophecy. It refers back to Genesis 3.15. It refers forward to Revelation 9.15-21 through by way of 2 Thessalonians 2.8-12. through 
So all of those bring pertinence, if you will, bring information to the cross being on top of the head of Goliath. Now allow me some ambiguity here, bringing ambiguity to the issues, opaqueness, if you would. Opaqueness is a word. Look it up. You have phones. You have a computer. You can add Ness to anything. You know that. If you have opaque, you would have opaqueness. Steve, Steve Ness. You, know, you add Ness. That's the rule. Anything that you add Ness to makes a word. That's that's the principle. Did David know why he buried the head of Goliath? Yes or no question. Binary. Plainly, David knew enough to name the place where he buried the head. Gal Goliath. It's no longer on the board. Gal Goliath is a compound word of Goliath from Gath. So he knew that this is Goliath from, from Gath's head. So that's where he said it's at. And everybody knew it. It's us Gentiles don't know anything. Plainly, David knew enough to name the place this exact spot. Woo, that brings up a question immediately. This location, Gal Goliath, the place of the head. Matthew 17.33, as I said last week, Calvaria, Calvaria. That's the place of the bald head. And the bald head is also the place of a cursed head because bald and cursed have the same relationship as we covered last week with regard to Elisha. David certainly knew that the head of a Goliath was significant. He cut it off and he took it back to Jerusalem. How did he know that? Who told him? How did he figure it out if no one told him? He cuts the head off and he takes it back to Jerusalem. What's his reason? Now, there's all kinds of commonplace, uh, if you will, diminished views on this. He took it back as a, as a symbol of his greatness. He, he wasn't anybody. He's a shepherd boy. He thought he'd probably go back to being a shepherd boy. Didn't happen. But why would he take the head of Goliath and his armor into his tent and I wish I have a six of diamonds right here because I told myself, oops, it disappeared. I told myself I would get into what happened to the sword of Goliath today because we had somebody. I'm thinking it's Gabriel who wrote, uh, I hope we get to the sword of Goliath. Unfortunately, we don't today. It, it is a subject almost on its own. And I, as I've been fascinated by it for years. And you will not be, but I will be, and so I have the pen, and that's what we'll do. That might have been John, too. Could have been John? Could have been John. Okay, I remember seeing it going, yes, I'm going to do it this week, and then I ran out of papers. I got way too long. And so I can't do it this week. But um, certainly David knew that this head that he had cut off was very important. How did he know did David know that he, who's the shepherd that would be king? Of course he didn't. He's a shepherd. He doesn't know he's going to be king. So you can't put that, you can't put the head into that context. Did he know though at some point, did he think that he would be king and therefore he would be the type of the seed of the woman of Genesis 3.15? It doesn't make sense that he would know that. That's a lot of information. If David, let's go ahead. Let's go ahead and concede that David knew that. Had it all worked out. I'm going to be a, the, a type of portrayal of the seed of the woman. And so I'm cutting off the head of Goliath and I'm going to take it back to Jerusalem because I know what that means. I, I think that's preposterous, obviously. If David made that connection, conceding the premise that he would know, then he would know that Goliath represented the seed of the serpent. Because that's Genesis 3.15. This is the this is the seed of the woman striking a fatal blow to the seed of the serpent in portrayal or in type. And if you again can see that David had this understanding, and it's I won't rule it out for one reason. Why won't I rule it out? Because who knows all about this? That's right. The Holy Spirit of God knows all of that. So that means, makes it supernatural. If he had the understanding, it's stunning. It, it ventures again into the supernatural. And therefore, the Holy Spirit must be involved. He is the teacher after all. And he could have done it. Can't rule it out. But it seems highly unlikely. That's not how the Bible works very often and how the Holy Spirit works. But this is David. Uh, so we have to lead at least allow that there are no zero probabilities in quantum physics. That's where we get quantum tunneling and the tunnel diode and all those wonderful things. Never mind. Asymptotes. 
if we grant that David knew what to do, so he knew what to do. He knew that he had to gather five stones. He knew he had to strike Goliath. He had to fling the stone at Goliath, and I've covered this before. It had to cause Goliath to be paralyzed. Then he had to, okay, now's the time to lift the sword up and behead Goliath and confiscate the armor, bring the head back to Jerusalem. If he knew all of that ahead of time, again, that's a supernatural revelation for him. Or did he just do it without knowing the intensity of it, much less the meanings of it? And that's the what. He knew what to do because he did it. Now, if he made it up as he went along, well, that's fine as well, because that's what God does, does with us, right? Do's with us. Get water. We go along, and he uses it for things that we can't even imagine. But that's the what. Did David know why? Did he look back on it and go, why did I do all that? Did anybody know why? Did anybody watch this event, five stones, strike Goliath with the sling, cause him to, to be incapacitated, take his sword, behead Goliath, confiscate the armor, bring the head back to Jerusalem. Did anybody know why that was happening? Anybody? And if so, how did they know that? And if so, who exactly saw this or knew about it and said, wow, look at what just happened here, Genesis 3.15. Did anybody do that? So let's let's consolidate this problem. We'll wrap it. We'll get wrapping paper. We'll get a nice box. We'll have ribbons and a bow. Or we'll have none of that. Count on the letter. Who knew why Christ placed his cross on the head of Goliath? Did anybody know before that cross was set that that is Christ doing that? Putting it on top of the head of Goliath. Who knew that Christ did that? Placed his cross on the head of Goliath. Did anybody know that? Anybody? Who knew about the spot where it happened? As soon as they saw it happening, they said, oh, I know what spot he's going to and why he's going to that spot. Because God loves places. He loves locations. He's fantastic. With, he is the greatest GPS locator that has ever been thought, thought of. For 40 days, the uncircumcised Philistine blasphemed the living God. Forty days, morning and evening, what is that? Light and darkness. Goliath defies the army of Israel. And he's doing it in front of Saul and the entire army of Israel. And Saul was one of these guys. He, he tore apart a yoke of oxen. That's two. As one man, that's the literal meaning of that verse. As one man, he tore apart a, a yoke of oxen. And he cut it up into pieces as something that, that connects to Judges 19. That's 1 Samuel 11.7. Saw a mighty man of power. 1 Samuel 9.1. Was greatly afraid of Goliath. Saul is the most beautiful and the tallest and the most powerful man in all of Israel. Hey, he's greatly afraid of, of Goliath, as was all of Israel, 1 Samuel 17.11. All of the army of Israel, with the exception of who? the shepherd who would be king, but didn't know that he would be king, David. David was completely unafraid of Goliath. Now that's a fantastic juxtapositioning, dichotomy, if you will. The champion of the uncircumcised was fierce. He was imposing. He was dreadful. He caused extreme terror. And all of Israel that was there trembled. Doom was upon them. No one could save them. Who is like this beast of a man who is able to make war? Who is able to make war against him? Yes, I threw in Revelation 13.4. So you can begin to see the picture here that is clearly there. We have a beast that no one can defeat. Who Everyone's terrified of him. No one can take him out. Except a shepherd, turns out. The shepherd, the shepherd, actually. I doubt that anyone knew that Christ set his cross on the head of Goliath. By anyone, I'm going to restrict it to the Jews who were there. The Roman centurion and, and his execution detail. So Roman people. The Sadducees, the Pharisees. The disciples didn't know. Most of them weren't there. The women were far off. They, people watched this from a safe distance. Because why? They were afraid. 
And, the, and of course, the church hasn't figured it out. The church hasn't figured it out for a long, long time. Now, it's obvious if you read the Bible. I'll do that here in a minute. The Bible makes it clear that this the cross was put on top of the head of Goliath. It does it in an incredible way. It should have been obvious to anybody. But the church is, of course, we are, Lori showed me a video today of a, sh- of a sheep that is trapped in a crevice, a crevasse. It's about two foot wide, maybe, and this boy is grabbed, and it's a long, it looks like it might be some kind of water system, uh, and it's made out of concrete. So the, a boy grabs the sheep by the back legs and pulls it to safety. The sheep is delighted, jumps over this concrete system, runs to the other side, and jumps right back into the crevasse. Okay, that is the church. Okay, mucus in the front, dingleberries in the left, in the back. So I would say that this information, this knowledge that I believe they had, dramatically had this knowledge, and we have not had it for thousands, at least a thousand years, maybe longer, certainly the last 200 or so, and that, and that is the case for the church. So, Christ did this. He obviously knew this spot. He's God. He's always known this spot. Before the spot had any physical characteristics, he knew what it was. He also knew what happened there. So I want to know what happened here. For whom did Christ intend to see this prophecy? Who's he doing it for if nobody that's watching it has any clue? And most of the church history has not had any clue. So who did he do it for? Because if he only did it for the last, well, since 19, 1900, the early, eight, late 1800s to now, well, that's a 100 years. And I'm grateful for the people that uh, have come before me, and I hope I'm adding something that they approve of. But whom, for whom did Christ intend to see this prophecy of Goliath and the cross fulfilled? And that was an that was an intentionally poorly worded question because I did that wrong. I should have asked that more theologically sound, but I didn't because I'm still this guy for another couple of days. I hope. Who knows anymore? Some days are tougher than others. What I did is I asked that question in the form of Matthew twenty-seven thirty-three because Matthew twenty-seven thirty-three becomes really important. They all do, by the way. We'll get to that in a minute. When by all of them, I mean all of the four Gospels. Matthew seemed to know it. He seemed to know it when he wrote Matthew twenty-seven thirty-three. Now, you can make the same case that I made for David. That Matthew's inspired by the Holy Spirit. We know that's true. He may have written something like Daniel did and not understand it. But I think he knew. I think he knew that Christ, before the foundations of the earth, time is a foundation. Before time, before matter, space, and energy, and gravity, the lamb is slain. Revelation 13.8. So he knows that. And, and Matthew appears to know that Christ would place his cross on the head of Goliath. And if Matthew did in fact know that, I lean to the side that Matthew did know. If he did know it, thus we have to consider when Matthew knew it, when he had the information, when he decided this has got to be, because the Holy Spirit works with him. You don't even know what the Holy Spirit sometimes is leading you to do. But Matthew, I think, recognized, hey, what I'm about to write is incredibly important. Matthew is a tax collector. He is the tax collector, Matthew 10.3. One of the twelve apostles wrote his gospel through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit of God approximately 50 to 70 A.D. So this is at least 20 years past the crucifixion. Maybe 40 years past the crucifixion. It's certainly, he wrote it prior to the destruction of the Jerusalem temple. Matthew, in my opinion, did not know prior to the lamb slain what he wrote, what it meant. In other words, he didn't know. He didn't write it, obviously, but he didn't know that he would write it. He didn't know anything about it. How do I know that Matthew didn't know at the time of the crucifixion? Because Matthew did what what they all did. He scattered, as you know. They were all greatly afraid. 
And John likewise knew, John 19, 17. I should read Matthew, huh? Did I, did I read Matthew last week? I probably did. Let me see if I'm going to read it again. I think I am. Let's go read Matthew 17, 30, or 27, 33. What did I say, 17? Sometimes I do that. I say 17 when I mean 27. Because I'm old and infirmed and my kidneys hurt every single day. Twenty-seven thirty-three. Let me go back here. Uh, now, when they came out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name, actually Simeon. Him they compelled to bear his cross. And when they had come to a place called Golgoliatha, that is to say, the place of the skull, they gave him sour wine mingled with gall to drink. But when he had tasted it, when he had tasted, now this is a great mystery, the two wines. Obviously, Christ is omniscient. So why does he have to taste it? He doesn't. So why does he taste it? But when he had tasted, he would not drink. That's Matthew. Likewise, John also knew, because John 19:17, and he, Christ, bearing his cross, went out of the place called the skull, which is is called in Hebrew Golgotha. Luke, as we should expect, 23:33, knew. And when they came to the place called Calvaria, Baldhead, Second Kings 2:23, and of course uh, uh, Mark, Simon, Simeon, the Cyrenian. Now again. Mark and Matthew mentioned the, the Simon or the Simeonian prophecy. There's four Simeonians. Mark 15, 21 through 22. Then they, the Romans, the execution detail, compelled a certain man, Simeon, a Cyrenian, the father of Alexander and Rufus, as he was coming out of the country. What country was he coming out of? Most people believe he's coming out of Egypt. So he's coming into Egypt. He's going the opposite direction of the execution de- detail because this is a uh, this is a pilgrimage festival week. So let me repeat that. Then he, then they, the Romans, compelled a certain man, Simeon, a Cyrenian, the father of Alexander, who is not part of the crowd, coming the opposite way. So he didn't know what had gone on to this point. That's why they took him. Here's the one guy that had any idea what's happening. The father of Alexander and Rufus, as he was coming out of the country and passing by to bear the cross beam. Now, I know you've seen all the Mel Gibson movies and everything else where they're carrying the whole cross. That's not how the Romans did it. They made the, they made the executed, they made the, uh, the condemned carry the cross vein. Now, again, why did the Romans compel Simeon, force him to carry the cross vein? Mark and Simeon, I'm sorry, Mark and Simeon both knew. Simeon knew why he had to carry the crossbeam, and Mark knew why he had to carry the crossbeam. So did Matthew. They all knew. So did John and Luke. And we should all know why Simeon, being part of this, the four Simeon prophecy, we should know why he did it. Because that helps you understand that this is the place of the head of Goliath. Because it's tied to the head of Goliath. It's part of the evidence. Now, I could make that very clear. Or I could move along and leave that hanging. Which one will I do? You are right again. I will wait. I will wait for you guys to figure it out without me. And then when you can't, and all this massive amount of money pours in, that's a joke. We do not. What's that? Or mail. (laughs) Yeah, mail might might show up. It might not be so friendly. But it's really something. I've given you a key piece here. You can think about it. It's in all four Gospels. That immediately should help you. But they knew that it's tied, that Simeon, the Simeon prophecy is tied to the head of Goliath. And it was not because the omnipotent God of creation, let me knock this out of the park in case there's somebody new. It's not because God himself, the omnipotent God himself in the flesh, was unable Oh, 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 to carry the cross beam. That can be true because he's omnipotent. Omnipotent is paradoxical, antithetical with unable. There is no unable with omnipotence. 
So, duh, stop with the stupid movies. Get those things out of your mind. It isn't anything close to reality. It didn't happen. It is a struggle over 13, 25, whatever, 50 stations. It's just, I hate to pick on them, bless their hearts, but there isn't such a thing. The Romans panicked. Here comes a guy. We're going to make him carry the cross beam. That's tied to the cross beam on top of the head of Goliath. Also does something else, and we'll get to that in a minute. Anyway, I'm ranting there. <laughs> Where was I? Mark 15, 22. And they brought him, and everybody gets this wrong, him, most translations, assume the pronoun him applies, references Christ. And they capitalize him in, in Mark 15, 22. But who's part of this? I have Christ. Who's, who's being compelled besides Christ? In Christ, you can't compel omnipotent. Huh. And you also... Again, I submit that this is Simeon the Cyrenian because you can't bring Christ anywhere. Just like uh, uh, omnipotence is paradoxical to unable, it's also irreconcilable uh, with brought. How heavy is this God of creation? How do you bring him? What do you need to bring him somewhere if he doesn't want to go? Yes, that's right. You you have to figure out what he wants, and then you do what he wants. That's how it works. That's why they compelled the Cyrenian. And that, again, Simeon is part of these four Simeons, and I'll get to that in just a second. So broad is is irreconcilable with omnipotence. That means it's going where he wants it to go, and he wants to go there. Now, what interpretation of that fits Best, I'm going to make the case again that it's the place of the burial of the head of Goliath. And therefore, him should not be capitalized in your Bible. I, I write, I, everyone, every Bible I have, I write Simeon above it in Mark 15:22. So the four Simeon prophecy is being fulfilled by Simeon being brought to the skull of Goliath. Not, not Christ. Why does Christ want Simeon to go to the skull of Goliath and watch the cross be put on top of the skull or the head of Goliath? Why does he want that? Because Simeon's there. And if I'm Simeon, I'm thinking, they're bringing me here. they got three crosses. I'm looking around to see if there's a fourth. got to be a little worried. You're in an execution detail. They might just forget who's who and you go up on the cross instead of a thief. Who knows? You know he's got a lot of angst, but Christ wants him at this crucifixion. And he wants him to know where and why it's why, why it's where. So again, let me repeat this. I have Simeon the Cyrenian. I have Simeon the brother of the of the twelve, right? Joseph's brother, one of the twelve uh, tribes. I have Simeon the the prophet that saw the Christ child before he passed away. That's a tremendous prophecy about the end of the age of the Gentiles. And then we have Simeon Peter who couldn't answer the question. Kept getting it wrong until Christ finally, and finally he says, "You know all things." And he doesn't understand. He's with John at the at the grave, and he doesn't understand that. So we have he, he denies Christ three times. So I have these four, and they make up the Simeon prophecy. And all are four. They're all Simeons. And so look up the name. Don't say Simon if you can avoid it, because Simon doesn't give you the meaning of the word Simeon correctly. And so you have to know what Simeon means. What is the meaning of the name? And of course, it's hearing. But so again, Simeon, the Cyrenian father of Alexander and Rufus. That's probably just stuff in there. Nobody needs to know that, right? What does it mean? Just identify Simeon. Well, how do they? Why do they want that information? Who is he? What's he doing now? He made it to the crucifixion. If you were at the crucifixion, how would that affect you? But he was obviously Simeon the Cyrenian. He was obviously saved by Jesus Christ here. So an unsaved Jew is coming the opposite direction. He's probably late. So you never want to be late. Or in this case, you absolutely want to be late. And Christ has the Romans select him. He carries the crossbeam because he would struggle under it. And there's no way people could tell. He might have looked like Christ a little bit. But they may have, because Christ is carrying the crossbeam the way you and I would it would carry a toothpick. I make the case that he's flipping it around like a baton. That's not how somebody's 
crucified in this system and they are they are in trouble and he's got a loud voice and he's in control they can't stop him from going anywhere because he's infinite and how much power does it take to move an infinite being so he's in complete control of his crucifixion if you think otherwise you are not understanding omnipotence or infinity But again, Simeon was obviously saved by Jesus through this carrying of the crossbeam. Jesus always saves. He's everything he says, everything he does. Alexander and Rufus are saved. How do I know they're saved? Because they got to be. Now, okay. So where am I? I'm doing good. Looking at the clock. The train ain't come yet. And they, it says, the Romans brought him, Simeon, to the place of Golgotha which is translated place of the skull. So again, why did Timothy, I'm sorry, why did Simeon travel all the way to Golgotha? What was the plan here? What does it mean that he took the hearing guy, part of the four Simeons, to the place of Goliath's skull? What does that mean? What happened to Simeon if he was saved? I'll help you. I'll answer the question. Doggone it. I hate doing that. If Simeon is saved, and it's obvious to me that he is, and his sons are saved, it's obvious to me that he is, what saved him? That experience at that gravesite. And he's a Simeon. Or not gravesite, crucifixion site. He's a Simeon. So he fits in these prophecies. So that means something important. And his his name means hearing. All four Gospels include Goliath. All four. So that means it is incredible testimony. It's astonishing revelation. If you have a position about Goliath and it is not astonishing to you, then you've got the wrong one. It's, again... Revelation that that has been lost by the church because the church are sheep, idiots, mucus, dingleberry. But again, when did these four gospel writers learn the meanings? All of them said this is so important. Remember, John put everything in his in his book because his gospel, because he's trying to prove to anyone that will read it. Please read it. If you read it, you will find out that Jesus Christ is God himself in the flesh. He's creator God. It's the deity of Christ is his sole focus. He's got it. Therefore, that means that something about the head and the and the cross testifies of the deity of Christ. But but when did they figure it out? Because they they ran. They all ran. They all hid. They all denied. Simeon Peter, he denies. He can't, he can't answer a question. He doesn't know about omniscience. He can't be put into service until he recognizes that Christ is omniscient. The four Simeons portray the nation of Israel, in case you were wondering. There's your answer. So Simeon, the Cyrenian, uh, he is portraying the hearing of Israel with regard to the person of Christ. Because to this day, they don't know. Anyway, the sheep, which is the apostles, they scattered when the, the shepherd was struck. Zechariah 13.7 Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man who is my companion. That's a triune verse, says the Lord of hosts. That is the 126th of Genesis being displayed again. That's the us. Strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. So that's a prophecy. Why did the sheep have to be scattered? Why couldn't they stand and fight? They didn't. It's part of the whole plan here for the sheep to be scattered. It's a prophecy again in Zechariah 13.7. I do not believe that if the apostles knew that the lamb slain was to place his cross on the head of Goliath. they ought, Let's say he told them. I'm going to put my cross on the head of Goliath. He says that to them. What changes would have happened? I don't think they knew that. I don't think there's possibility they'd know it, because if they did know it, what would they do? They would not have, let's take the negative, they would not have run in fear if they knew that. 
They would stand there. I submit they would have rejoiced. Look, he's putting his cross on the head of Goliath. Do you know what that means? The church today has not a clue. There's not a movie out there that says this is where Christ put his cross because that is where David buried the head of Goliath. Not one. You can find it, but you got to dig. Now, the internet makes it a little easier. When I first learned this was 19, my goodness, it's 1970s. I got a transcript of a guy named W. Noble King. And that was the first time, I'm a young idiot. It's the first time I began to look at this crucifixion as under the control of an omniscient, infinite being. And Mark Linloff, if you listen, you're the one that said, hey, read this. He was living upstairs at the time. He said, here, this is somebody interesting. You might like it. Boy, was he right. So I put myself in the place. If I know that this is what's going on, the head of Goliath is underneath the cross, I'm excited. I'm rejoicing. <coughs> I'm seeing the realization of First uh, Samuel 17:45 through 58. That is a prophecy. The killing of Goliath is a prophecy. I'm watching it come to pass. But they didn't know as evidenced by their sheep scatteringness. Scatteringness, hard to say, but it's a word because we add the additiveness principle is there. Comes through again. Okay. So if the apostles didn't know, the crowd didn't know, the Romans didn't know, Simeon didn't know. Who knew? Anybody know? I think people knew. Who do I think knew? I'll give you two seconds. Okay, time's up. I'm going to say Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus knew. And they were excited. I have the evidence of that because they're busy. They know he's going to be crucified. And they know why. And they know where. And they know why where. They made burial spices. The women, they're clueless. They're not going to make the burial spices until Friday. Nicodemus, of course, is doing it on Wednesday, which is a Passover. So they're, they're, they made burial spices. I know you're going to say to me, well, they can't work on a Passover. Well, there's two Passovers. They can work on one of them. They made burial spices and they brought linens, burial clothes. They brought the head cloth. The head cloth. They bought, brought a head cloth for a body that could not go into corruption. I've done that lecture many, many times. His body does not need burial clothes. It doesn't need a head, head cloth. It doesn't need burial spices. And they bring them anyway because they know. That body could not go into corruption, could not go into decay. That's Acts 2, 31 through 32 and Psalm 16, 10. So Nicodemus and Joseph, John 19, 38 through 42, they request the body of Christ that cannot in any way decompose. They get it from, cannot go into purification. They want it from Pilate. They go stand in front of Pilate. One of them is a Pharisee, Nicodemus. Now, some people say Joseph is the one that asked. But these guys are working together. And that's a bold act. Uh, can we have the body? It won't go into decay. But I got all these burial spices that are completely useless. But I'm going to use them anyway. He's not going to stink. Because he can't. Psalm 16.10. And this, of course, connects to Lazarus, as you know, John 11. It's a bold act, and I say they make that bold act because they know something. Consider that Nicodemus have the second Adam's body. 1 Corinthians 15, 42 through 49. That's an amazing responsibility. They have the body of the second Adam or the last Adam. What did they see when they got his body? Now, do they know ahead of time that he can't go into corruption? I think they did. Again, they're making burial spices, not because they thought he would, but because they knew he wouldn't. It's a completely different perspective. I know that's tough, tough to fight through, but we'll get it. So they have the body of Christ, the last Adam. It's unaffected. It corresponds, therefore, to the body of the first Adam at Genesis 2-7. They, they look at the body of Christ. And he's in the spirit and the, in the soul and the consciousness. Of course, he's omnipresent, so it doesn't really work out so good. But they have the body of Christ. And it is not going into decay in any way. Just imagine that. 
And again, it's the same as the body of the first Adam, Genesis 2-7. And remember, the Apostle John sees, and I don't have time to cover John 28-9, through 9, but sees the face, sees the head cloth, and immediately knows that Christ has been resurrected, because that was the point of it. Peter didn't know, and Simeon Peter is part of the four Simeon. It's not three Simeons in John, it's four Simeons. In any case, most of the followers of Christ did not know the Goliath-Genesis 3.15 connection. I think the man with the pitcher of water knew, Luke 22.10. The man who tied up the donkey in her coat, Matthew 21.2. Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus, the teacher of Israel. If anyone knew about the Goliath prophecy, it is the teacher of Israel. John 3, 1 through 17. And John 3, 1 through 17, what a coincidence. I love the word coincidence. What a coincidence. John 3, 1 through 17 is the New Testament complement to Genesis 28. Oops, 28, 10 through 15. That's incredible. Because what is Genesis 28, 10 through 15? Because it's uh, John 3, 1 through 17. Genesis 28, 10 through 15, same thing. That is the angels ascending and descending on the ladder that is Christ, with Christ standing above it. So again, it's a triune, omnipresent verse. That is where Christ says, Behold, I am the God of the living. He raises that to the Sadducees in Matthew 22, 32. We've covered it many times. So what we're bringing now to this Goliath thing is this Genesis 28, 10 through 15 ladder. Angels ascending and descending Christ here, but he's also the ladder. Why are the angels ascending and descending? What's their purpose? When did this begin? What is the cause traceable to a condition or event? Where does Genesis 28.12 fit in the New Testament? Genesis 28.12 has to have a New Testament complement. And of course, John 3.1-17 is part of that. What's that? Yeah, I thought it. So now I get to say it. By the way, Joseph, Nicodemus, man with the pitcher, man tying the donkey with the colt, how many men is that? Answer the question. You can use your fingers. Phones. Use your phone. I'm going to do it again. Joseph, Nicodemus, man with the pitcher, man tying. Christ tells him, go go follow a guy with a pitcher, right? Pitcher of water. He finds a, a donkey with a colt tied up. Right? Who tied up the donkey and the colt? Who had the pitcher of water? So I got Joseph, Nicodemus, the man with the pitcher, and the man tying the donkey with the colt. How many men? The answer is two. Yes, because it's Joseph and Nicodemus. They're, they got a job. They know stuff that nobody else knows. They're amazing. How do they know? He's the teacher. He, he looks at Christ. He says, I know who you are. And Christ says, okay, I got a job. So that's what you tell Christ. When you know who he is, he gives you a job. I told Dave this. I, I, I have to look at it. Uh, this has been the case in my life. You've read my book on real estate, How to Make $100 in Real Estate Over 25 Years. Uh, I told him this is one of my things that I came across a long time ago that I just wrote down one day. If God wants you to do something, you'll fail at everything else. And that has been the story of my life. Much to the dismay of Lori. And all the neighbors who try to hear me have played the trumpet. Okay, who knew where Christ would give up his life? Who knew? Because no one can take his life from him, so he gets to pick where it goes because you can't do anything about it. So who knew where Christ would give up his life? Did Nicodemus know that? Did Joseph know that? Who knew that he would do this above the head of Goliath? Why do the angels ascend and descend? Why does Michael the archangel defer to Satan at Jude 9? 
In Deuteronomy 34, 6, it, it, it implies that he is afraid of Satan at Jude 9, which is Deuteronomy 34, 6. So why is that the case? When did Michael know, or did Michael know, that Christ would put his cross on the head of Goliath? And that's Valerie's question. Here's Valerie. So far I've been on Pastor Sermon's question. Now I've moved down to Valerie. Hi, Valerie. Hope you're watching. Because now your question is here. Did Michael know? We've decided Nicodemus and Joseph probably knew. The apostles figured it out. Probably Christ told him because he did. He had a lot of time, rode to Emmaus, all this stuff. There could be lots of people that knew post-crucifixion. But when did Michael know? Valerie, if you remember, asked, did Christ come to save both angels and mankind? And I modified her question a little bit slightly. Okay, truth is, I made Valerie's question completely unrecognizable, but that's my job. Any investigative process inquiry into the merging of the angelic realm and the human sphere will necessitate the examination of Genesis 3.17, Genesis 3.19, Jude 9, Revelation 12. So, 17 and 19 is dust. Cursed is the dust, earth, ground. Put anyone there you want, but I'm going to pick dust. Cursed is the dust for your sake. To dust you shall return. Okay, allow me to reconstruct Genesis 3.17 and 3.19 in an effort to define for your sake. Here it is on the board still. That becomes very important. That explains lots of things. The common position of that phrase is that the ease and the beauty of the garden will be supplanted by the arduous punishment uh, of the environment that comes. And I don't contest that, but the most obvious of the obvious question then leads out, how is that for our sake? Because that doesn't seem to fit with for our sake, the way I look at it. For our sake means something good. That seems to be something bad. In addition, the repeating of dust is clearly an intentional parallelism. Try saying that five times. Keep in mind that the author of Scripture is omniscient. um, uh, He has omniscience. And his omniscience, it invalidates, it exterminates coincidental, accidental occurrences. So repeating dust is being repeated on purpose. And that means that it is consequential. It is critical information. So why is the dust, the cursing of the dust, kept to the forefront? Because again, that's Genesis 2.7. Why is the cursing of the dust and the return to dust for our sake? Now let me reword it a little bit. Physical death, the disintegration of the body, is for our salvation. Because our sake would be our salvation. How is that true? Notice my substitution for uh, for salvation. Can I do that? I think I can. For my salvation... Your body will go to dust, Steve. Therefore, it is our welfare on behalf of us in our interest, best interest, that the physical body decomposes, which would explain why Christ, what couldn't decompose is no sin. But it wouldn't decompose because he doesn't need to be saved. He is the saver, right? So the best interest for us is that our physical body decomposes. Mine has decomposed right in front of you here in the last 45 minutes. Yeah. And it go, in other words, it goes to corruption. Notice that this is Ecclesiastes 12, 6 through 7. And it just entered the discussion, came into the door. For you, you that keep score, here he is. He's up to bat now. And if Ecclesiastes 12, 6 through 7 is here, so also is Joel 2, 32. Is it not self-evident that the greatest reward, the highest gain, the best sake we can get is the gift of saving grace from Christ Jesus? That is for our sake. That's the sake he wants. That's the sake he means. Does it mean a couple of days of this, you'll be a better person? No. How does he define sake? Not how do we define it. How does he define it? And what's his name? His name is salvation. Thus the body returns to dust, and we, our person, our soul, our mind, our consciousness, returns to him who gave it, gives it. Ecclesiastes 12.7 Somehow physical death is interwoven and is tied to our salvation. 
The wise are going to investigate or comp- contemplate that, the entirety of the matter. Get, get going. And that's why we have now to shift to Mark, Michael the Archangel, because he's germane to Valerie's question. He's so important here. As is the ladder of Genesis 28, 10 through 15, because I have the ladder. i got angels going up and down on Christ while Christ is overhead. Who's down here? Humanity, fallen humanity. It's one of the great prophecies in Genesis. The angels are involved in salvation. That means the angels are involved in what? The physical death of the bodies. To repeat the basic problem, why do the angels ascend and descend? For what purposes? When did the assignment begin? Did they always, did Christ, did God say, well, pretty soon you're going to be ascending and descending on a ladder? Oh, wait. I changed my mind. Let's do it differently. When did the angels, when were they given this job? Again, what is the event or condition, this assignment, this task? What is the event or condition that traces to the cause? Something caused them to go up and down the ladder. What caused the ladder? And I can throw a bunch of verses at you, but I, I don't really know why I will. Ecclesiastes 12, 6, and 7. I gave you that one already. Isaiah 14, 12 through uh, 18. Genesis 1, 2 through 1, 5. Ezekiel 28, 16. Actually, I cut Isaiah back to 12 through 14. Isaiah 14, 12 through 14. You get the rest of it if you want, but those are the main ones. Genesis 3, 17 and 19. That's the dust. Genesis 3, 20 through 24. That's the uh, driving out. Genesis 1.26, that's the us given to the angels. Genesis 1.1, that's Elohim, the first time it's mentioned in Scripture, the first mention of Elohim, which is the us. Genesis 3.22, Genesis 3.4-7, through 7, that's Satan and the lie. Genesis 2.7, that's the body made from dust. That answers the latter. All of those. If you didn't get it, it's okay. We have another week of this. The angels ascend and descend because the heavens and the earth are in turmoil. They're in turmoil, both of them. Did God make them in turmoil? No. Something caused them to go into turmoil. Chaos, void, darkness. What's the cause? And the darkness did not get removed, did not get ended when the light hit. As you know, the darkness is separated from the light, but we still have darkness and we have light. So we got to, we're making progress. But the key question has always been, why didn't he end it right there? Boom. Well, obviously he didn't want to do it, so why? Knowing why God gave time to the darkness, because that's what he does. He gives time to the darkness to continue. Darkness is going to continue for a time. For an age. Why God delayed the judgment of the darkness, the dark ones. That's pivotal. It's indispensable understanding. Why on the fourth day does he put the sun and the moon? He obviously did that for the fallen and the unfallen. Because there's no man, there's no animal. That's the outset of the countdown clock. As you know, it starts on the fourth day. The sun and the moon established after three days and what? Three nights. Sign of Jonah, Matthew 12, 38 through 45. And the unnamed Anna, I should write unnamed. That's her question. Finally got to it. Is there two ends in unnamed? I think there are. The unnamed Anna's question, number two, is right here. The sign of Jonah, the visuality of the soul. The Jews believe something really interesting. I've always noted it. They believe that the soul lingers over the dead body for three days and three nights. Leaves on the fourth day. They use that as why uh, Lazarus is four days in the grave, because the soul would be gone. That's what they say. That's not the reason. Christ may have included that, but the reason is is because I have seven days between Jonah and Lazarus. Signed Lazarus, signed Jonah. So Anna wanted to know if you could see the soul. Unnamed Anna. I won't name her, whoever she is. So anyway, the mystery of Michael comes before the unnamed Anna's visuality of the breath of life question. But that's important. That fits here because everything concludes down here. All of these are really question four, as I said last week. The mystery of Michael now. Keeping in the uh, chronographic pattern. 
is one of my strengths. In other words, I'm going to go chron- with chronology here. And as you know, chronographic is a form of chronister. Yeah, so obviously I'm the chronographic chronister. I always go in order. No one ever said that, nor will anyone ever say it other than today. Okay, how am I doing? I think I'm doing great too. Thank you. Let the record show I'm doing great. First time ever. Okay. Michael the Archangel, incredible. Daniel 10, 13 through 21. He's the great prince who stands up, who stands over the people of Israel. Now that is interesting. He's standing over the people of Israel, just like Christ is standing over the ladder. And so you, a lot of people, a lot of theologians think that Michael the Archangel is in fact Christ, but he's not. And he does, he stands over the people of Israel during the tribulation, the time of trouble such as never was since. Daniel 12.1, Revelation 3.10, Jeremiah 37, Joel 2.30-32. The time of trouble such as was never since. This is a powerful angel. His name literally means, Michael literally means, he who is as God. He is the warrior angel. He's the only angel called an archangel. There's no other archangels. You'll see them all over the internet. There aren't any. This is the only one identified in scripture as the archangel. And that makes sense. Michael is the commander of the unfallen angels. He has an army. That's his army. That's corresponded to Satan. And the evidence suggests that, uh, that Satan is superior to Michael in quite a few ways. Certainly he's more powerful and he's smarter. Satan was the anointed cherub. He is filled with brim, uh, filled to the brim with wisdom. Ezekiel 28, 12 through 15. He's the highest of all the created. And Michael is hesitant to confront him in Jude 9. He says, the Lord rebuke you. Because I can't rebuke you. Or I won't. Probably a combination of both. And Satan, though he is outnumbered, is the more powerful force. He has the upper hand. He is the determining factor. There's only a third of those guys. If Satan wasn't there, it'd be a slaughter. But Satan stops not only the third being slaughtered, but the third being even impacted because he's so much more powerful. And that, and that, he stays that way until Revelation 12 when we have the war in heaven. Michael and his angels attack. Who blew the trumpet to attack? They attack Satan and his his angels, his fallen angels. And Michael drives this powerful being and his forces from heaven. He casts the serpent, the dragon, down to the earth, knocks him down. And there's a view that proposes the cause of this attack, this standing up, because Michael is standing up. Here he comes. What made him come? What does he know? There's a view that says this corresponds to the abduction of the bride, but it doesn't fit. Again, chronographic chronister. doesn't fit in the chronology. But they think this is the abduction of the bride because of the rapture. The bride, the bride must pass through the domain of the prince of the power of the air, who is Satan, Ephesians 2.2. So the bride has to go through, and Satan is attempting to stop it. But that wouldn't be the battle in heaven. That would be a battle in the air among other problems. I do agree that the taking of the church is a vital, it's an incredible event. But the bridegroom is the omnipotent Lord God Almighty. The the church is the bride. So who is escorting the bride? The omnipotent Lord God Almighty. How much trouble does he end from Satan? None. Omnipotence again wins. Omnipotence always wins fights. Just lay that out. It's a brilliant piece of evaluation for which I am wonderfully rewarded never. Okay, the catching up of the bride is also in an instant. It's, it has a time reference. First Corinthians fifteen fifty one through fifty eight. The one who installed prime, the prime, the one who installed time, in whom time consists, uh, Colossians uh, one fifteen through eighteen. He does not allow Satan to respond to the abduction. It happens too fast. Satan's inside of time. Boom, done. He's, he, here you go. Being in authority, another great wisdom. Being in authority over time is a distinct advantage when you're in a military conflict. And 
when you add omnipotence and infinity, it makes it unlikely that Satan is going to make any attempt to interfere. He doesn't necessarily know how powerful God is, but he knows that God is more powerful than he can imagine. And this is also a latter event. This is why the angels go up and down. The rapture. Anyway, the point is finally another point. Something changes and Michael charges. The unfallen forces overruns the army of the dragon. The giant Satan is thrown down. The Philistines are driven out of Israel. Yes, I'm mixing the references and that's intentional. The simile is premeditated. I'm doing it on purpose. 1 Samuel 17, 45 through 54. You see this Revelation 12 is very similar. The, the lead up to it is very similar to Goliath. So what's changed? Why now? Why is Satan, why does Michael know that I can take him out? He's weakened. What weakened him? There's this fleeing of the woman into the wilderness, wilderness, wilderness. The come up here, that's the breath of life, resurrected the two witnesses. All of this just immediately in front, if it's chronological, and I would know. The temple of God was opened. His Ark of the Covenant's been seen. All of that just happened before this fight. But is, did that weaken Satan, or was it something else? Revelation 12:11 references the blood of the Lamb slain, which is amazing that it would put it there. The seventh trumpet proclaimed the kingdom of Jesus Christ. Again, those are right subsequent. Uh, I'm sorry, they, they are right previous to Michael's charge. How does it all fit? It's got to have something to do with Goliath's head and the cross, obviously. What does Goliath's head and the cross of Christ being lined up like Genesis 3.15? What does that prove? Because Goliath's head and Christ's cross are done. The angels saw that, didn't they? They had to see it. Of course they saw it. Did they know that cross was put on top of Goliath's head? Did they get together and say, why did he pick that spot? How smart are they? Did somebody say, hey, isn't that this place where David buried the head of Goliath? Because it's called the place where David buried the head of Goliath. Did any angel figure that out? Not stupid church people. We think, oh, it looks like a skull. I can see an eye here and maybe an eye here. It looks like, oh, kind of a, it's a real place. It kind of looks like a skull. That's why they call it. Good grief, stop. Can you please stop? It is one of the most significant things revealed in Scripture. And for all four Gospels, find everything that's in all four Gospels and make a list. Look what's left out. It's incredible. Okay, quickly, a few fundamental principles. Everything Christ said or did within the context of his crucifixion. The lamb slain. That's what he's doing there. He's the lamb slain before the foundations of the earth, which includes time. Everything he did saved somebody. Everything he said saved somebody. He saved many. His omnipotent carrying of his crossbeam stunned the Romans. What did that do to them? They tried to beat him to death. Didn't work. How do you beat omnipotence to death? You don't. No one can take my life. I have to lay it down. And I'm in control of time. And you're not. It's a real advantage when you're in control of time. His omnipotence in his in the precursors to the, the pre-events to the cross beam uh, stunned the Romans. They were stunned. They had already begun to figure out. We never saw a crucifixion like this. We've never seen anybody like this. We can't stop this guy from talking. His voice is deafening. We can't direct him where we want to go. He goes wherever he wants. Did the angel say, hey, look at what he's doing. He's going to the place where David buried the skull of Goliath. What happened on that spot? Is it pre-Genesis 1-2? Or is it post-Genesis 1-2? We have to decide that. Get your timeline. Simeon the Cyrenian, he substituted. He becomes, he represents Christ carrying the crossbeam. 
Christ is not cooperating with the norm. Simeon and his sons are therefore what? Saved. They're saved by that. It's obvious. Every saying that he says, all seven of them, Psalm 22, 1, the most famous one, of course, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's, he quotes Psalm 22, 1 to who? To the Jews. How many of them were saved? We'll get to that in a second. The darkness that came, the rent veil, the open grave, the resurrected people going into the city, the loud voice, the two, every one of those people who went into the city, what happened to the people they talked to? If that was their family, if I'm, if I'm in a grave and all of a sudden I come to your house and knock on the door and you watch me get buried and you know where I'm supposed to be, that body's supposed to be, I'm not there, that's the body. And I knock on your door and say, guess what? The guy that just got crucified resurrected me. How many of my family, how many grandchildren, how many neighbors? And there was a horde of them came out. All of that is to get somebody saved, isn't it? The, the loud voice, the two wines. I could go on and on and on. There's so much material that he did during the crucifixion. You can't even, it seems like you can't count it. You can't list it all. Every time he did or said something, somebody got saved. Or many got saved. The whole crowd, Luke 23, 48, who came together to that site, the crucifixion, that site of the head of Goliath, who came together to that site. I can say S-I-T-E or S-I-G-H-T. It won't matter. Seeing what had been, seeing what had been done, they beat their breasts. That was remorse and anguish. And they returned the whole crowd. What did he do? Save the whole crowd. It's good to be in that group. Everyone there got saved. All the Romans, everybody. Simon, Simeon, he saved the whole crowd of Jews. He saved the thief. He saved and he forgave the Roman executioners. He said to Mary, woman, behold your son. Why did he do that? That's not her son. He's not talking about himself. He's talking about John the Apostle. John, behold your mother. Who got saved? I know. I know what happened to the brothers, too. James. None of them. There's no evidence that any of them were saved prior to the crucifixion. There's nothing but evidence that they were saved after. Living blood and living water came out of his side. Again, that's Psalm 16.10. I think about the guy with the spear. I just, I can't pierce an omnipotent being. I can't. But I'm, he's let me do it. And he puts it in the right place because I don't know what I'm doing. So there I go. And what comes out of him? Living blood and living water. Did it hit, did it hit the Roman soldier? I would say it did. And what happened to him? God saved. That's what Christ does. Always saved. Next week, we'll spend more time on these four questions. I'll wrap them all up. See, there are seven things the thief heard while he's on the cross. I asked which one saved him. But you can make a list of who got saved by everything he said. Just take what he said. Who got saved? Look at every one of them. They're all the same. They all are saving somebody. When you figure that out about Christ, then you understand the ladder. Why they have the ladder. What's the reason they be? they're on the ladder? The reason they're on the ladder is they're doing something that has something to do with the skull of Goliath or the head of Goliath and the fact that the earth is in darkness. And I gave you the answer. I just don't want to lay it out. Okay, that's enough for me. I will shut it down.